Thank you for listening to Mass Device Radio. In this June 24th podcast, recorded live at our Device Talks Minnesota show, we spoke to Covidian's Stacey Ensing Singh about the recent Covidian Medtronic merger and what the future holds for both companies as well as the medtech industry. We hope you enjoy this podcast, and thank you for listening to Mass Device Radio. I didn't know if I should keep my appointment with you after the (laughs) announcement. I knew there would be lots of... Uh, questions and comments, but I can tell everyone I was not in the know, so I was as surprised um, as all of you. I actually heard about it from my 11-year-old when my... (laughs) This is true. On Saturday, I was doing the very glamorous uh, job of swiffing the wood floors because we have a dog who sheds a lot. And my son was out in the kitchen uh, sitting at the island, and he said, Mom, the Wall Street Journal says that Medtronic's buying Covidian. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> Let me see that. <laughs> so at any rate, so I probably wait, just preempted a question. Is it, wait, but, your 11-year-old um, reads the Wall Street Journal? Or? No, you know how you can get those yeah. blurbs on your iPhone and... Um, <laughs> Truly, what was funny about it is he said this, and I said, no. And I ran out into the kitchen, and when you hit your iPhone, when these come up, mm-hmm. they go away immediately. <laughs> well, I don't know how to retrieve them. You know? <laughs> so I was like, get that back. I need to read this. So anyway. <laughs> so what was the, I mean, I know what the first thing I said when I saw it, but what was the first thing you said? <laughs> Truly, I was thrilled. Yeah. Because my background is vascular. Um, I've spent 21 years in the vascular space, and I'm so proud of uh, all the organizations I've been part of, SciMed, Boston Scientific, um, Starting EV3, Covidian. You know, it's kind of a completion of a circle if you think about Medtronic because they're an incredible organization. But when I look at it, and there's lots of reasons why I just think it's so positive, um, which we could talk about and has been publicly talked about, obviously, but specific to vascular from the lens that I was looking through, um, if you believe in the changing dynamics of healthcare, which I think everyone now very much does as it relates to vertical integration and the power of the portfolio, um, as a vascular player without cardiovascular, I think long-term that would have been a real issue for a business that I'm really proud of. And uh, so truly my first thought was this is fantastic. And then you go through and you think just about that on a broader scale, the fact that the portfolios are so complementary, um, that the opportunity for further globalization is so strong, the elements of expertise that a Covidian brings to the table and that Medtronic brings to the table, um, you know, just the strategy behind bringing these two organizations uh, together. And not to mention we're here in Minnesota, and I just think it's fantastic from a Minnesota perspective, which I feel equally proud of. I'm not from Minnesota, but have been here since um, 93, and I just think what... The people here, the technologies, the companies here have done, um, you know, I want to see that continue. And so when you think about those kinds of organizations coming together, I I can't help personally but be very excited about it. Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, I think we've sort of come away with the seven or eight things that are, might, you know, 
this merger might signify, but I'm just wondering if there's something unusual or off the beaten path or non-conventional wisdom that you see about this union that maybe that you haven't read yet or have, have heard about that, that you think is particularly intriguing. I wish I could say I had an original thought there, <laughs> but I think in a way they have covered it. I think the original thought, perhaps, again, I already mentioned is specific to vascular and just the context around really asserting a broad mm -hmm. cardiovascular portfolio. In all that I have read, I have not seen that specifically brought up, and I think that is a real benefit um, you know, perhaps less so specifically to neurovascular because neurovascular has not been, um, it hasn't had the same assertion as PV and CV in the minds of the hospital customer. But mm -hmm. I definitely think that that is an advantage. Um, you know, I was very pleased, like all of you, I have uh, listened to the various uh, CEO interviews, et cetera. And, you know, I'm very excited about, uh, you know, Mr. Ishrak's commitment to bring $10 billion back into the U.S. I think that um, medical device and medical industry, it, we should be very proud in terms of a U.S.-based business that has contributed so significantly not only to patient care but to the economy of the United States. And um, so that is something that, you know, we'll see where that goes, but I definitely have keyed in on that as uh, something that I think will be very positive for, um, you know, the innovative startups and the potential for additional investment in those areas all the way through to new technology platforms. So you've been a part of, this is your third sort of major acquisition where you've been on the acquired end? So yes. maybe people here should think about bringing you on board if they want to get acquired <laughs> by a fantastic <laughs> medical device company. But so it was SciMed to Boston, EV3 to Covidian, and now Covidian to Medtronic. And American Hospital and, Supply to Baxter, oh, which was okay, my so first more. job was with American Hospital <laughs> Supply, and then we were acquired by Baxter. So, so what works and what doesn't work in M&A? What, what's coming next, do you think, in terms of how is this going to – how is the, the integration – what, what do you think in your, in your experience, what have you seen that works in terms of when companies go through this period now where, okay, we've made the big announcement, now it's time to mesh these organizations together? Mm -hmm. What's the critical steps here? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I can definitely say that, for example, with the SciMed Boston Scientific um, piece, it was somewhat relevant experience to the EV3 to Covidian in that at the time, both Boston Scientific and Covidian with EV3, I think really recognized the power of what they were acquiring. And you're clearly going to integrate. So I think as the acquired, you have to go in with a very open mindset that it's about the new desired state that you're taking the businesses together. But I think it's very important for the acquirer um, to actually give the freedom to the entity that they have interest in acquiring in bringing that on board and ensuring that they understand through those employees and through those strategies that uh, that acquired entity is so positive about and is driving their business because that's why you want them and giving the freedom for that to really rise to the top. At EV3, we acquired Fox Hollow, and we did not do that, and that was not 
a good acquisition. And I think we underclubbed completely the concept of culture um, in an employee base. I think med tech companies broadly, wherever they are, um, because my bias is they tend to all be really incredible organizations and organizations uh, are no more than the people. And so I think you very much need to respect the culture of the organization and the people that you're acquiring um, in that process. I think that's very important. I also think, you know, it has been very successful. This is something I experienced with Covidian and EV3, the concept of an integration office. And I was pleased um, to hear in the announcement with Medtronic and Covidian the concept of an integration office, because I think it allows you to really focus in on, okay, what are the vital few things that we need to get right? And those are the things that have already been, you know, publicly well communicated. What are the real drivers of this acquisition that we need to nail and ensure that we get right so that we can deliver on the shareholder commitment? And then on those other things, you know, letting those kind of come in due time. Um, and Covidian did that exceedingly well with EV3. They very much focused in on the couple of things that made sense right out of the gates and the other aspects. They really let us, if you will, run our business. And what was very smart about that is that, you know, at the time that we started needing to integrate things more robustly. So as an example, Covidian operated in a matrix environment, and EV3 did not. Neurovascular and peripheral vascular were dedicated, you know, full operational, full P&L businesses. Um, at the time where we needed to move into the matrix at Covidian, we had worked with Covidian for, you know, 18 months, 20 months. People knew each other, so it was no longer just this, you know, corporate structure. It was okay, I know you, and mm -hmm. you run medical affairs, and okay, come on in. You know, let's kind of leverage the capability. And I think that was really very bright. And on the, on the tax aversion, inversion angle, because, I mean, we've read so much about that, you know, I'm just wondering, as how does the, the, the legal domicile of a startup influence the decision to invest or acquire a company. Can you see it becoming a, a bigger factor now? Well, you know, that is not my forte. <laughs> I mean, the tax inversion, inversion. Um, that has been written about, I mean, I can tell you, and probably everyone has read the same thing, you know, it's not a tax rate issue. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very important clarification. Um, but it's really about getting access to your outside the United States capital. And, um, you know, obviously, in operating a business, that has not been something that I've been focused on. We've had that benefit at Covidian, and I think, you know, without getting into the political discussion, the inability to gain access to your outside the U.S. revenues is an issue. Mm -hmm. And so, personally, I think it's a great strategy um, for the acquisition, but obviously there's a number of other aspects to, you know, why this makes sense. Does this deal, do you think portend an era of consolidation? I mean, when you add this up to Biomet and Zimmer, mm -hmm. um, sort of coming on the heels of each other, is, are we now in this sort of environment? Or is well, it just a really interesting coincidence? 
No, I think that, uh, you know, independent of the Covidian Medtronic piece, to me, it's very much about how the healthcare landscape has changed. Vertical integration, that concept is not a new concept. Mm -hmm. I just think the magnitude with which it's being applied globally and the sophistication which is necessary to really grow and build businesses um, is a big part of why you're seeing these types of acquisitions. Um, there's no question that when you talk with the payers, when you talk with hospital systems, which have consolidated over the last number of years, when you talk to governments, um, which are contracting for their populations, they want to work with not just necessarily one supplier, but they want to work with a partner. And it's a partner that's now going beyond product and moving into services and solutions. And you really can't do that unless you have scale. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that it's that the Covidian Medtronic um, integration acquisition is starting something new. I think it's that both organizations, like others, have been fairly sophisticated in, you know, reading the tea leaves over the last number of years and recognizing that the paradigm has shifted, it has changed. And if we want to be the leader, which, of course, I'm sure all of us with all the companies that we're with, that's our desired state. If that's what we want to do, then you've got to take action over that and recognize the way you're conducting your business today is not you know, what's going to get you there uh, down the road. And that critical mass is power. When Boston Scientific acquired SIMED, you know, back in 1995, they talked about strategic mass. So I don't think it's some new strategy. I just think that, um, you know, more organizations are perhaps a bit more galvanized around taking action on that. Mm -hmm. So... At a recent conference, you said that building a better mousetrap that doesn't take value out of the system and where the patient isn't an advocate isn't going to win. Mm -hmm. I, I take it that this is sort of the, the product of the current environment that we're in. Yes. Um, so let's, I I'd like to dig into that a little okay. bit here if we could. Uh, how much of the industry do you think um, shares this vision? And I'm really more curious of... Do you think the companies that are coming up today in terms of the startups and the early stage companies, do you think that they critically understand this paradigm? Well, I'm certainly not the only person that's talked about it, so I don't know that it's a novel uh, concept. Mm -hmm. But this idea of innovation, I mean, let's start with the idea of innovation being defined more than just product. And I do think that if I look at, call it my first, you know, 20 years in med tech, it was very much about the product itself. And it was very much about, yes, the clinical performance, but in combination, the features and benefits that would improve the procedure, would allow it to be easier for the physician, would provide a better clinical outcome. In my opinion, innovation is now really moving beyond product to pre- and post-care, pre- and post-selection. It's moving beyond the actual um, disease treatment itself, 
and it's moving beyond the hospital in terms of a place of setting. So I think that concept is what's new. And when we look at our technologies that we've been developing, um, the conversations that are taking place in marketing, the conversations that are taking place in R&D, the conversations that are taking place in our medical affairs group, it is not simply the specific technology. It's the continuum of care. It's market development. It is how to utilize this technology in home care, uh, how to make the patient much more of an advocate. Even I was at a talk that was given, I can't remember the gentleman's name, unfortunately, with United Healthcare, and he was talking about even in the insurance business, they're not looking at the consumer in the same way that they were previously. They're looking at consumer activation, mm -hmm. activating the end user to be part of their care paradigm. Those are all, in my opinion, very new aspects that if you're starting a company, I think you should at least be looking at those things relative to the value that you're driving out of the technology or solution that you're delivering to the marketplace. And those are very new conversations. I think if you specifically try and get after, you know, is this fundamentally going to improve the value within healthcare in terms of, you know, reducing never events, reducing post-procedure complications, allowing the patient to be more involved in their care, those are new questions for engineers as they're yeah. developing and designing product. I wonder, though, I mean, this industry's done very well, frankly, making better mousetraps, though. I mean, I wonder... I just don't think they're being paid for. I mean, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, in the same way that they were. Mm. Um, I'll give you one example from our portfolio. We make really a terrific... Uh, atherectomy technology. If I had to have a procedure in my SFA, I can tell you that's what I would do. Um, and it would be better if the physician could see what they're doing inside the vessel. But that's not going to get paid for. Or at least put it this way, we're not going to prioritize the clinical trial work that would be necessary to demonstrate that we could dramatically improve the clinical outcome through visualization to get it through the regulatory bodies around the world, uh, when the performance of the device right now is excellent. It's just that would make it better. That would be a better mousetrap. That, in our opinion, is not going to get paid for. So that's the kind of development that we're not going to do. Now, if we felt like, let's say, that visualization aspect was going to take 10 points on patency, that would be a different story. And I think we would be able to demonstrate something unique and material. But it's this aspect of reflecting the reimbursement and the payment as to what gets paid for, I think, is obviously one of the major drivers that uh, all of the healthcare institutions, whether they're insurers or device developers, are responding to. Do you think the FDA is adequately prepared for this kind of changing paradigm? Um, you know, I, people have been on both, coin, both sides of the coin with the FDA. I mean, in general, I think that, uh, you know, it's been fairly predictable for the work we've done. Uh, I just think the stakes have gone up so tremendously in terms of the requirements that are necessary 
that uh, that is what's delaying the process. And, you know, no, I don't think in general any organization right now fully understands the implications of what's going to get paid for, what's not going to get paid for. I think FDA and CMS have made a lot of progress, but I don't uh, think they're, you know, a seamless machine Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, And CMS is obviously, you know, equally as critical, not to mention the other groups outside the United States in terms of what's going to be successful. How do you, I mean, how do you make a patient an advocate, though? I mean, I like my contact lenses. I freak out when I lose them. But I'm not really an advocate for them. I mean, I'm an advocate for having good vision. Yeah, well. But how do you, how do you, how can you make that, that leap? Well, a couple of different thoughts, at least, uh, that come to my mind, and I definitely think this would be a great question for the panel, um, because I would be interested in others' perspectives here. Um, But, you know, there's a couple of different ways that we can think about advocacy. One is, how are you going to choose to use your dollars? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, patients are more responsible and accountable to the dollars that they spend on their own health care whether that is just a cash pay type procedure where they're completely paying for it out of pocket uh, or it's actually a procedure that's covered under their insurance. So you need to take, if you will, better action over your care because you're paying more for it as an individual and therefore providing that kind of delightful experience Um, I think that's an important component of advocacy. I think the other piece of it is some of the really intriguing um, just market development work that has gone on to allow patients to take control of their care and choose to intervene earlier. So we have a business with our Closure Fast radiofrequency ablation technology, and uh, it's the Rethink Varicose Vein campaign. You know, varicose veins have been thought of so often as simply cosmetic. And the reality is that that can be a very freeing experience for a patient to have their varicose veins treated and to have less leg pain and therefore be more mobile and more engaged in life. That's an advocacy example. Mm-hmm. The other real example of it, which I think is an interesting shift in healthcare, is this transition now between medical devices and technology application. There are 95,000 apps that, were, uh, that are out there right now that are healthcare related. At the Consumer Electronics Show uh, earlier this year, 25% of the technology that was uh, shown at the Consumer Electronics Show had to do with health care. The human genome, you can get your genome done now for $8,000, your own personal genome. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, it was north of $100,000. Those all, I think, represent opportunities for individual advocacy on where you're going to choose to spend your time, what you're going to focus on, how you're going to take action for your own care. And how medical technology can tap into that, I think, is an incredibly intriguing question. It's an intriguing question, but I don't, I don't get the sense in all of the things I hear that there's a very clear answer yet. I mean, well, I think it's you know really quite new um, yeah. on many levels. You know, it was my just a, another little example. You know, 
I was talking with my son. He's going into sixth grade, and he really badly wants an iPhone. He doesn't have one yet. And he said, well, Mom, realize that when I'm 18, I can make my own choice. And I said, sweetie, realize that you're 18 in seven years. Seven years ago, there wasn't even an iPhone. So I don't think you should get too worked up over the iPhone. (laughs) And I think that's a real new concept when it comes to, you know, even who's the competitive landscape. Uh, You know, we, we have, I have always thought about it. Medtronic, Boston Scientific, J&J, Covidian, Abbott, Google, Samsung, Apple. Are they competitors? Are they enablers? Are they collaborators? I mean, I think some of these are very open and interesting questions. Um, Just yesterday and today at the LINK meeting, which is a neurovascular meeting in Paris, uh, we actually, for the first time, we ended up getting a grant from Google And uh, there were live case demonstrations in which the operator was wearing Google Glass and was basically, you know, transferring their case experience through Google Glass. Um, Okay, that's cool. I don't know what that means, but that is a completely new capability as it relates to even what we were talking about earlier on the legal panel. The training implications of that, the dissemination of information is just, it's at blistering speed. And um, I think it causes, I don't have the answers, but it causes a lot of new questions. And that's probably for our team anyway, perhaps the most powerful component is what new questions are we asking? Because if we're asking the same questions that we have been in the past, we're missing the opportunity to redefine how care is delivered and doing it in a more, you know, conducive mechanism to enable care around the globe, which is really the vision, I think, of the majority of healthcare companies. I mean, we've established that over the past seven years. I mean, you're seeing a gigantic leap in terms of technology, but you were recently tasked by Covidian to sort of run or or help run this 2020 vision. Mm -hmm. How do you you even begin to grasp a question like that? I mean, in some ways, it's an easy question because you can say whatever you want. And or just watch science fiction movies and just say you know flying cars or what have you because <laughs> you know you might be right and it might just be by accident. But how do you how do you approach looking at 2020 with any real sense of purpose or, or, or clarity? Well, um, it is a big question, and uh, but at the same time, I think there's a simplification to it. You know, pick your guideposts. And obviously, you know, move toward those. We, we've talked a lot in EV3, and we brought some of this to Covidian, this concept of, you know, current state, desired state. How do you get to your desired state? And if you take the concept that we wish to contribute to expanding access to care that's more economically viable, because health care is uh, currently, in at least most of the developed world, not running at a sustainable rate, and we want to enhance the patient experience. Mm-hmm. So just take those three things as a guidepost. It causes you to think differently. Um, and I would say that, you know, obviously there's some plans and strategies for 2020 that I wouldn't articulate, But I think what's important is to pick your destination, 
make the plans and work toward that. And that's a simple process that I think if you really respect that process and do it with a lot of different constituent input. I mean, I am a big advocate of, you know, cross-functional teams, very diverse teams, inherent and acquired diversity, customer, and it's not just your customer, it's your contrarian customer, payers. We're incorporating all of that feedback and answering those questions of what do you think the you know care looks like in 2020, and uh, there's some interesting answers that are coming out of that. So you're convening those right now, sort of these Absolutely. big cross-functional teams. Absolutely. What's I mean, is there any sort of very wild people you're bringing in in terms of very who very wild sort oh, of wild. out of the box people? <laughs> I don't know. Like, um, I don't know that they're wild, but <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to make sure that we've got all the bases covered. And everybody knows what those are, but sure. it's just the discipline around doing that. So, I mean, I... I would say, I guess I would say, the one, and I already talked to it, the one, at least for me, because I don't consider myself tech savvy, which is why I couldn't get the Wall Street Journal article back on my phone. <laughs> but... Um, I, th I think that is an incredibly new question. I really do. And I think that, um, you know, how you incorporate um, individuals that are very um, facile with that, individuals out of those different entities. You know, we've had conversations with uh, some of these other organizations on capabilities and, um you know, again, there are other organizations talking about this. Medtronic actually, I think, has been the lead sure. communicator around this total solutions concept. Um, but to me, those are very new questions that at least I'll keep it to myself. I don't consider myself, you know, domain expert on even asking the right questions. So just simply being in those conversations, I think, is at least causing my thinking to change. Yeah, I mean, and, and I recently heard Steve Osterley say basically, you know, look, Google, he said 20 years, I think it might even be sooner than that. It's going to be, you know, not Boston Scientific St. Jude or Boston Scientific Medtronic. It's going to be Medtronic. Google, you know, those that Google is going to be the great competitor of, of the next medtech world. Do you think the medtech world is looking at Google and the entities such as Google in an, in an appropriate manner? Um, or do you think it's still so far, far off that you're kind of feeling each other out? I, well, I don't think it's far off, A. Um, I don't know what it will ultimately look like. But I was speaking with an executive from Samsung, you know, doing some just kind of, you know, diligence discussions with some of the work that we were doing. And he was kind enough to take the calls out of the blue. And um, at any rate, um, you know, one of the things that he said, which I thought was very interesting, was his perception of medtech is that it's very siloed in general. You know, it's a lot of medical technology type companies, right. and they generally are siloed. Mm -hmm. And in his place of business, it's very collaborative. There's a lot of sharing across different companies to create new entities and different styles of partnering. And so I don't know that, um, you know, Google specifically is a competitor 
it might be that they're an enabler and that we need to work in a different capacity that we have in the past. Now, that being said, uh, I'm on the board of a hearing instruments company, Sonova. It's a Swiss public company. And interestingly, their advanced bionics group on the West Coast has lost some engineers for medical technology into the, you know, technology firms, the Googles and the Apples. Um, So I wouldn't certainly be asleep at the wheel that they could be a competitor, but I think that there might be an interesting enabling aspect um, to those technology companies. Right. In terms of the silos, do you think that there's enough young people, too, going into med tech that find it sexy and exciting to kind of compete in that world? Gosh, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I was at the University of Minnesota at their, you know, device conference, and there were a lot of young people in the audience, and that was encouraging. Um, But I think that's probably a big responsibility for us in the industry is to continue to provide that as an attractive pathway, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in terms of engaging with your schools, uh, engaging with other schools, internships, um, I certainly feel very fortunate, so I never pass up an opportunity to, you know, try and work with students, whether it's FIRST Robotics, um, you know, the STEM connector initiatives. I mean, there's a lot of ways that industry can get involved. I don't know the statistics on young people going into med tech, but I'd like to think that, you know, we're spending the energy yeah. there to continue to make it attractive. Yeah. And just for the record, as someone who lives in mortal fear of Google, uh, I... Uh... <laughs> Considering half of our business comes from there. We love Google. Uh, (laughs) I just want to jump back here to uh, EB3 because recently you told me you didn't think EB3 uh, wouldn't have worked out had it been founded today rather Mm -hmm. than back in the early 2000s. I wanted to dig into that a little bit. why, Why do you think that is? Well, I don't think that there are as many um, brave investors as there was with Warburg Pincus and the Vertical Group to conceptually get behind a few individuals to go build a new med tech company. Mm -hmm. And we had the benefit of having a pretty big checkbook to be able to go do that. Um, And when you look at what has happened... Um, in venture investing, you know, since 2008, it's obviously dramatically decreased. So that's one issue. Um, The second is that I think it's challenging, although I wouldn't rule it out, to find spaces where you have this dominant, you know, um, component. So in this case with vascular, the dominant component was cardiovascular. And back in 2000, 2001, our observation was that while there were companies that were serving peripheral and neuro, their focus was all on basically drug-eluting stents when I'm talking about the interventional business. And we saw that as an amazing opportunity uh, to jump in and basically care for those customers, design specific technology, and there was enough money to go buy some platform capability that we could then, you know, reinvent um, fairly quickly. Now, I wouldn't rule out that there are spaces where perhaps that same concept can be put into play, uh, but 
it takes a lot of money and a lot of time. And I'm just not sure that there would be the willing investors right now to jump in and do that. Um, you know, it, it's so often with success, people think it, you know, happens overnight. I mean, we started EV3 in 2000. We took the company public in 2004. Uh, we got hammered on the Fox Hollow acquisition in 2008. You know, we had a number of years in there that were really reeling. And uh, in 2010, obviously, we had a terrific experience and exit with Covidian, and now it has gone on to continue to perform. Um, but, you know, this is 14 years later. And so these things really require a lot of care and feeding and patience. And um, I think since post-2008, um, you know, the world has changed a little bit from that perspective. So I'm going to jump to a very sort of esoteric question here. So I read in a recent profile um, that you greatly admired people who create, like mm -hmm. sculptors and painters and people who can, I think you said, express the beauty in what their mind sees. Yeah. How do you do that in your current job? That's a great question. In my current job, um, well, let me just say, in med tech, What's I guess, the beauty you see in med tech? What's, uh, yeah, I would do it that way because I think uh, it's why I just feel so humbled almost every day and very privileged to work in this space because you get to see the impact that you're making on others. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, it might sound... I think. In another world, I would love to have been an artist. I just think it's amazing when you can see creation of something, and I see that creation in medical technology. Um, when I was coming out of school, I had the opportunity to join um, a couple of biotech companies, and I thought they were terrific organizations and terrific people, and obviously the world has been made much better with pharmaceuticals and biotech, but I couldn't see it. And when I look at our technologies still today, I'm in awe. I mean, I just think it's incredible what we're able to accomplish with technology. So, you know, what I think is so creative is that I've had the experience to sit with the engineering teams and to have them talk about what they think we could do and then have that come through mm -hmm. and have it be so and then have the clinical data demonstrate that it's making a difference for those patients and having family members or friends or loved ones that have actually had these technologies. I mean, it was funny. I was with an investor uh, 18 months ago, and he was lamenting um, the coronary stent business and what a crap business it was. Because, you know, the revenues were so flat and the share wasn't really going. And this is exactly how he's talking about it. And I said, I get it. You know, you're a financial guy. And I recognize low growth rates don't look great. But I'm sorry. It is a great business. It is a business that in 1993 when I started was not even here. And now the patency rates for patients when they receive a stent, especially a drug eluting drug-eluting stent, they're basically solved. Now, how can you tell me that's a crap business? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And so that's the beauty, I guess, right. I see in the creation aspect. So how do you express that beauty when we're in a world where we're building products strictly for the economic value? 
Well, the beauty in that is I think we need to if we want more patients to have access to care. I mean, the reality is when you look at 18%, 17%, pick your number, uh, of GDP, that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our industry has benefited greatly from that. I have benefited greatly from that. But from an objective perspective, you know, just do the math, that's not a sustainable outcome. So just as we have solved so many things relative to addressing disease with technology, I see the beauty in solving that. Now, that's in the developed world. Now you go to the areas of the world that are underdeveloped and you recognize how limited the care is and how few people actually get access to care. Um, A friend of mine, her father suffered a stroke. Uh, She is from an underdeveloped country that is in chaos. Okay, he could not even get access to saline to be able to deliver the drugs. I mean, that's unbelievably basic. And so I think for the great creators, which let's call the med tech industry and, and certainly many of the, you know, benchmark companies, I think solving that, that's an incredible thing to be optimistic about, proud of, and look at it positively versus, oh, you know, prices are coming down. Right. Um, so one last question, and we'll make it quick. You've been in this business, you said 28 years, is that correct? Correct. Okay. What's the best piece of advice you've received? The best piece of advice I've ever received is um, your attitude determines your altitude. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, was from my father, he's a pilot, (laughs) so this, (laughs) this was something I heard very early. Uh, but I have really come to, uh, and obviously everybody has their days where my attitude is not the best, but when I think about that particular piece of advice, it has made the difference for me. Um, because you recognize the energy and everything you contribute to that. And, um, so that's, and I've consequently, one of the reasons why I've just loved med tech and healthcare is because I think it's made up of a sea of positive attitude people. So it's just been really great, you know, to be part of the organizations I have been part of.